You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Tuesday, October 30th, 2007, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Rebecca Watson. Hi, everybody. Jay Novella. And Evan Bernstein. <laughs> uh, hi, everyone. Sorry, I have no lycanthropy noises to share with you tonight. I thought we caught Jay in the bathroom or something. <laughs> I, or, yeah, I got a little hoarse voice tonight, Jay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's a lot, of, a lot of time in Bob's haunt screaming at people. Right. And by the way, Evan, it's lycanthropy. I believe, I, I uh, believe Perry right. corrected you on that once before. Yes, he did. Mm-hmm. No comment. <laughs> Evan, you wrote uh, the other day about this wonderful CNN article on how to get a good ghost investigator. (laughs) Uh, Wasn't that awful, guys? It was embarrassing. Just pathetic. Typical pathetic media bullshit. You know, I understand it's the time of year, and I'm not looking to be a wet blanket in the Halloween season. I I enjoy it just as much as, you know, I guess the next person does. But, I mean, but the, this fella just, you know, took it to a whole nother level. This guy, hook, line, and sinker, totally believes in ghosts. And is, I mean, I mean, actually, he's totally credulous when it, comes to, when it comes to this. And his analysis is just laughable. It's the stuff of, I don't know, like uh, fairy tales. You know, Evan, the thing is, around this time of year, you just have to turn your, bull, your bullshit detector down to almost zero for the month. Let let the TV stations do what they're going to do. It's it's the absolute worst time of year if that stuff bothers you. I understand that, but don't you think don't you think that it continues to um contribute to like the collective gullibility that that people have and our society has and our culture has? I mean, think about it. think about how ingrained the belief in ghosts and UFOs and these sort of things is in our in our very culture. Hey, we all enjoy the ghosts and the horror and all that. The problem is, is that the journalists, for them, it's fluff, it's a fluff piece, right? So that, that means there's no journalistic integrity whatsoever. Um, the problem is that these alleged ghost investigators grossly misrepresent how science works, and it does reinforce the, the naive, you know, lay perceptions or, or misconceptions about science that are are very harmful ultimately. Yeah, I think there are ways to write like fluffy Halloween pieces without just totally caving in and saying that this stuff is real or you know giving out false information and right. things like that. There's a lot of cool stuff you could talk about from mythology to you know local folklore, uh, even if. You don't have to say, oh, well, maybe it's true. It's interesting enough just to retell the stories as stories, and people get that. But, yeah, sadly, too many people, mm-hmm. too many journalists tried to turn uh, folklore and mythology into somehow real-life news, and that's just so misguided. I like the tips The tips he gives here and on how to like make sure that you have a legitimate investigator, as if there is a difference between you know a legitimate and a paranormal investigator. One of his tips is make sure the investigators know how to use their equipment. Oh, yeah. 
the equipment they're using is all garbage anyway. Right. It doesn't mean anything. It's totally show. That's the thing. Either That's they're just like cameras. Yeah, make sure they know how to use their cameras and, and tape recorders. Or it's stuff that is absolutely uh, without any scientific validity whatsoever. For example, like the EM detectors that detect electromagnetic waves. So they walk around, you know, detecting their EM waves. They have no idea what it means. It's not discriminating in any way. Um, or they might, they may have infrared detectors or temperature you know gauges to measure cold spots. Uh, again, gathering data is only useful if the data has some meaning. They're just gathering data for the sake of gathering data. You know, the other thing too is if you take a look at that tip that the guy gives, it just smacks of him sitting there brainstorming a list without without him doing any research whatsoever like he's he says make sure they know how to use their equipment that that's something i would come up with if i was cu- trying to come up with just some filler list of things yeah. to qualify ghost hunters and and where's the you know and could he list one skeptical organization uh, right amongst the, <laughs> amongst this now this one was devoid of even token skepticism which is the usual formula. But again, the token skepticism is optional, and obviously they opted out on this particular case. But they gave a plug to the American Ghost Society. Now, is that for ghosts or for ghost hunters to sign up? Uh, both, I think. I mean, once you I die, two, if you're two an American, offices. can you go and register? And- it's a very simple registration process. You just have to die. The next part of this article was that he goes on to say, um, if it's determined that there's a presence in your house, I guess by you or the ghost experts, the investigators should suggest that you get in touch with a family minister so they can come to the house and pray for the soul of the spirit that is present. Oh, yeah. So, so you're out of luck, Exactly, because, you know, what What happens to the Jews and the Buddhists and the atheists and the Raelians who, who don't exactly uh, have a family minister? But he gives either a better suggestion in case a minister is not available or unwilling, you should be able to suggest another person, such as a medium or a psychic or someone else go. who is sensitive to spirits. So it's now, you know, now we're piling up our pseudosciences and our, and our crackpots, one on top of the other. But n- not all the reporting this cycle was as, as gullible or as terrible as this awful CNN article. Uh, there was, I'll just point out that there was an excellent article in Newsweek that basically took the point of view that ghost experiences are, can be explained on the basis of our brain function. That these are, in fact, a neurological phenomenon, which, of course, I completely agree with. So it was good to see that Newsweek took a, a more scientific approach to this. Uh, and also, almost every October, you know, we get interviewed by some news, local newspaper or local you know, news station to give the token skepticism um, uh, on their fluff ghost piece for the, for the year. But this year I was interviewed by Michael Hartwell, who happens to be a listener of our show. And actually, he was present at the live taping in New York that we did. Uh, and he did a, a piece that was 50-50 balanced. It was kind of... It was presented or written as a point-counterpoint type of story. So um, the skeptical point of view was 50% of the article, which is good. Like I, I had an opportunity to make all of the, the key points you know, that from the skeptical point of view. The gullible ghost hunters on the other side were, get a load of this, the Unicorn Ranger Psychic Police. <laughs> Wait, did you say Unicorn? <laughs> The Unicorn Rangers Psychic Police. Wow. The Unicorn Rangers, guys! I think my daughter watches that show on on Saturday mornings or something. <laughs> I mean, 
Yeah, that's, those guys are still wearing those. What were those things called? Garanimals? The mighty the morphing power animals. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, right. The news. The new zoo review. You might <laughs> call it. Particularly Going lame. Back away. The lead guy. This guy Ohura Deliza. You know, they he they had video of him investigating this allegedly haunted location, and he's just walking around, just pulling stuff out of his butt. Oh, I feel something over here, and I sense this. He had really nothing even remotely interesting to say. Did a little cold reading stuff at one point. He, you know, the, he said that he could sense the the entity that was allegedly haunting the location, and asked if if the uh, the person who was supposed to be the ghost wore glasses, and the answer to that was no. So he recovered. He, it was a clear miss. He recovered by saying, oh, I was drawn to the intensity of her stare. That's why I was drawn to her eyes. She's nice recovery. Nice, nice recovery. Out. Yeah. Turn a, hit, turn a miss into a hit. That's, that was a good one. Uh, and then here's, but here's the funniest thing he said. And this is in the video of him attached to the article, uh, which is online. He said that people who are in a hypnagogic state between waking and sleep... In that state, you can see astral energy. There it is. There you go. So when you're in a hypnagogic state, you can see ghosts. Uh-huh. Uh, so on the one hand, it was interesting that he knew the word. So obviously the, that word, yeah. hypnagogia, is leaking mm-hmm. into the ghost hunting you know, subculture, uh, even though they still don't quite get it. And I, I likened that in the article to uh, saying that people, a really good time to see ghosts is when you're high on hallucinogenic drugs. Right. That's, a, that, that's when your ghost-sensing abilities are at their peak. Do your ghosts wear glasses? <laughs> <laughs> Particularly lame. There was one other um, good pro-skeptical um, ghost article floating around the web. Our friend Ben Radford had a great article out on life science. You can find it on Yahoo about ghost tourism booming around this time of year and uh, he's got a few good um, gets a few good punches in like um, mini tours tout their guides as certified ghost hunters or certified paranormal investigators though that's like claiming to be a certified kitten petter yeah <laughs> so you guys can check that out <laughs> It's always bad when you have any kind of licensing or certification or, or anything that is sort of self-legitimizing, but it's in a field that's utter nonsense. It has no external validity, you know? You know, they're, they're full-time now. It's not even, you know, just a... It's like having Christmas shows on all year round. Right, having the paranormal shows all year round. Yeah, that's it. It's a staple of TV now. It's just one of the things that yeah. you get all the time. Yeah, unfortunately, the History Channel has a lot of these shows, and shame on them, really. I mean, you know, because I've seen some good things on the History Channel, but I've seen some horrible things come out of the History Channel. Yeah, they're, they're a mixed bag. Like that terrible demonology show that I was on last year it was horrible, horrible pseudoscientific nonsense. So, yeah, the History Channel is no quality control. It's really hit or miss. Um, last week, I mentioned that uh, I was going to be uh, part of a panel discussion on homeopathy at uh, the University of Connecticut Medical Center, and that I would give you my report from the trenches. I did uh, write a two-part blog about it where I go into it in some detail, but to give you the highlights, um, it was an interesting conference. It was myself and Another physician from Texas were the skeptics. There was also a uh, an Italian physician who was 
participating remotely from Italy, who was also the, uh, an alleged skeptic, although his talk was pretty neutral. I mean, I wasn't really sure actually what his point was. And then the, the, uh, on the, the pro-homeopathy side was Rustam Roy, who's not a homeopath. He's a materials scientist who uh, his, his main point was that the efficacy of homeopathy could be contained in the structure of the water. Um, it was pretty utter nonsense. The structure of the water. The structure of the water. Um, so, just for you know, the quickie review, I'm sure most of our listeners by now know what homeopathy is. But you know, homeopathy is a 200 year old um, philosophy of of medicine developed by Samuel Hahnemann that includes remedies that are diluted to the point where there's no active ingredient left. They're diluted far, far beyond the dilutional limit. A lot of people, you know, don't know that. They think it's just natural remedies or herbs or something. It's not. It's they're a really magical thinking type of uh, of remedy. It's based upon um, some other ma- type of magical thinking, including what's called what they call the law of similars, which means that like cures like, which again is just sympathetic magic. Again, just pure superstition, no scientific basis. Like for, for example, whatsoever. if you. If you want a sleep aid, they would give you a very small dose of caffeine. Yeah, although they wouldn't do that. They would give you no caffeine because it would be diluted to the point that there was not a single molecule of caffeine left. Yeah, and the water would retain the vibrations of the caffeine molecule. Yeah. Uh, my point was in the talk was that was to to address the lack of scientific plausibility of homeopathy, just from a basic science point of view. And I outlined, I'm going to quickly mention them right now, I outlined a number of specific points where homeopathy lacks plausibility. Namely, every single premise or point that homeopathy is based upon. The first is the law of similars, which I just mentioned. There's no basis for that. It's just sympathetic magic. Hahnemann had this idea that the body would not allow two symptoms, two, two diseases causing the same symptom to exist in the body at the same time. You know, Again, there's no biological principle to that whatsoever. Hahnemann's theory of disease which is not necessarily part of modern homeopathy, was the miasma theory, that you know, all chronic illnesses were caused by these miasmas, which were some sort of external poisons that were attacking our body. Homeopaths, when they individualize their treatments, they, they present that as being holistic. They're considering the whole person. But what they're really doing is basing their, their treatments on very, very superficial biological or personality traits, like if you, what the color of your eyes are and if, do you like the sound of, of piano music and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Silly things that have nothing to do with biology or disease. I mean, just, you really need to read the homeopathic, you know, writings. It's really downright silly. For example, the next one is the law of infinitesimals, where they claim that the more you dilute a substance, the stronger the beneficial effects become, while the harmful effects become less. They also have the principle of succession, which is that when you shake the homeopathic remedy, the essence of the substance gets transferred to the water or the alcohol in which it's being diluted. Again, there's no scientific basis for the presence of this essence or that shaking it can in any way transfer any property to the medium in which it's being diluted. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, of course, Rustam Roy and others try to rescue this fatal problem of homeopathy that there's no actual there there there's no ingredient left in the in the in the remedy by saying that the water remembers it because the water can have structure 
there, there's some complexity to this literature in terms of the the methods that are used to look at, to visualize the water, such as such as using NMR or spectroscopy or or luminescence, you know, basically different physical properties of the water. And what he's what he and others are essentially doing is looking for anomalies, looking for transient, you know, minute properties in the water, and then claiming that that's persistent biologically relevant information in the water and that leap is so huge that it's it's uh, you know mind-boggling steve i would figure this would be another very good example of a pseudoscience that would be relatively easy to disprove you tell them you claim that you can create some type of concoction that will cure aids let's see it work you don't even have to do that. I mean, you you just add, you just put two glasses of water, but in front of them, and you tell them uh, which one's the homeopathic remedy, which one's the regular water, and ask them to figure out. Yeah, which and you know which. what, that, Evan, that's the one thing that they've never done. So even though they have all of these anomalies that they say equals water has information, they no one has. Been, they they can only see it when they know which one is the homeopathic remedy, which is like the N rays, right? People could see the N rays when when they knew when they were supposed to be there, but. One blinded test ended the entire notion of end rays, which which don't exist. Just like homeopathic, you know, water memory doesn't exist. They have an excuse for it, but what I'm saying is they're they're claiming that they can cure all sorts of things with this, and these are things that can be detected and tested. They should just why doesn't someone put a study together? Well, Jay, you're talking about the clinical evidence, and it's there. I mean, that's the second part of this. I'll get to that in just a second. Let me just finish my list of why it's completely implausible. There's no evidence that these anomalies have any persistence or or meaning, or that they can store information. Uh, in in the water, and that then there's multiple more implausibilities in that notion. First, that that the, that the water knows which molecules to remember the structure of. Right? Well, wh- why is the the succession um, transferring the essence of of one substance, not every substance that's been previously diluted in that water? Uh, and the structure would have to survive, you know, putting it into a pill form or putting it into a, a form that can be taken and then ingesting it and then being absorbed into the body and then being transferred to the blood. And again, there's absolutely no reason to think that that's even remotely possible. Don't they fall back to quantum mechanics at that point, Steve? And that- Sometimes they start talking about quantum mechanics, which is, you know, at this point, it's just like saying it's magic. Right. I, I said, yeah, whenever they're resorting to quantum quantum mechanics, that's always a sign of, of true desperation. And then finally, you know, drugs work because they bind to receptors in the body. The receptors are there because that's how cells talk to each other and communicate to each other. There's no, no aspect of biology or, or, or models of how cells communicate to each other involve these transient structures in water being signals back and forth between cells. Roy was concluding that he was providing the plausibility for homeopathy when he, he wasn't even coming close to doing that. He's just providing plausible deniability. It's just cover. It's just cover for the homeopaths so they could have something to, to point to to say that, they're, that they're, it's possible that homeopathy works, but it's still just as much nonsense. And to put things into perspective, Rustam Roy, during the, the question and answer session, which unfortunately was not web, the part of it was not webcast, he declared the materialistic paradigm dead. And his evidence for that was his experience with John of God. Do you guys remember who John of God is? How could we forget? Oh, yep. yeah. He's that healer from Brazil, that fake charlatan healer who, who like, 
makes incisions in people's skin and then pretends to psychic. It's like a psychic surgery with a little bit of physical stuff. stuff scissors you know, mixed up your in. nose and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, it's all stuff that you can duplicate, you know, like scrape, scrape your, your sclera. I mean, it all looks really impressive, but it really is just simple things that it's a sleight of hand stuff that you could do. Um, they're just physical tricks. That, but Rustin Roy was so co- convinced by this guy, he said, that's it, the materialistic paradigm is dead. Because he, as I said in my blog, because he was bamboozled by a second-rate conjurer. That's the scientific credibility of Rustam Roy, right there. Now, Jay, you were talking about the clinical evidence, and there was yeah. you know, a lot of discussion about that. Iris Bell, who is a, a, a trainee of, of Andrew Wheel, was there to present the clinical evidence. And here, it was a plea for the acceptance of substandard evidence. The Double-blind, placebo-controlled trials of homeopathy are negative. She characterized them as mixed, which I thought was being too generous. They're actually, if you you do a systematic review, it has the pattern of something that doesn't work. The better designed the study, the smaller the effect, and the best designed studies are negative. That's the pattern that you see when there's no actual effect there. What she, and she was acknowledging that the double-blind controlled trials did not demonstrate that homeopathy works for anything. But she said that we should allow, as legitimate evidence, essentially anecdotes, uncontrolled clinical observations. That's, that's Andrew Wheel's magic words for anecdotes. No, we should not allow anecdotes. Anecdotes are misleading. So she was trying to argue that anecdotes are actually reliable. And as unreliable as anecdotes (laughs) are, they're a hundred times less reliable when they're the anecdotes of homeopaths. And that's not an ad hominem argument. I I wouldn't trust anybody's anecdotal evidence, let alone a dedicated practitioner of a pseudoscience who, who definitely has an ideological axe to grind. No way. And then she had the final excuse, which is, you know, whenever the clinical evidence is negative, they, the, the standard excuse is that the, the studies are not, were not properly designed. That's what they say in defensive acupuncture. That's what they say in defensive everything, right? Wow. So it's, it's a total mirror image to how science really yep. works. Yes. Now, of course, if they were positive, they wouldn't have that complaint about them. Right. But the, the, uh, and they're not properly designed because they're not individualized enough, because they weren't able to, to individualize the treatments holistically to the patient, depending on whether they cry at classical music or not, right? Which, of course, completely contradicts the whole, you know, like, like cures like philosophy. I mean, the third guy who was the ironically named Dr. Sane, who was a, na- who was a naturopath from Canada. I am uh, Dr. Sanity. He, he presented the epidemiological evidence, which in practice was 150-year-old anecdotes. That was his big you know, evidence for homeopathy, because 150 years ago, some homeopath said he cured cholera with, with homeopathic treatments. That was it. I mean, that guy was, he, his presentation was like a sales pitch. I mean, he was like a sideshow barker for homeopathy, really. He was like a patent medicine salesman. Steve, did anybody that was there present anything in a manner which you thought showed that they were educated or had an idea what was going on? It depends on what you mean by that. I mean, Iris Bell clearly knows how to talk to talk, and you know her presentation was slick. Uh, but I, I told you specifically why I thought what she said was utter nonsense. She's saying we should believe anecdotes, 
she you know misrepresented the the clinical evidence and and she dismissed the negativity of the of the reliable evidence in my opinion now we'll see you know so now homeopaths are pushing for these new clinical design new these new trial designs that include a period of individualization of the homeopathic treatment so the the trials that they say need to get done will get done over the next 5 to 10 years if they're properly designed and carried out i predict you know just from probabilistically that they'll be negative and i also predict that they'll have a new you know a new excuse for why the data is negative steve when we talked about this a few days ago yeah i asked you um like what was the audience's reaction to you yeah and you said that um in the beginning they were obviously everybody was stiff but that as you went into your explanations and the way that the way that you you uh, steered through the day's conversations that they actually said, well, all doctors are screwy except you. Like, you're the only one that we've ever met that has an open mind or that's reasonable. Well, I mean, the, the audience was 50% practicing homeopaths, and the other half, you know, maybe with a couple of exceptions, were, were pro-homeopathy. It was a t- almost completely pro-homeopathy audience. And all of the questions in the Q&A section were all pro-homeopathy and all revealed their bias. But clearly... Their perception of what like the skeptical physician is it was was pretty negative going into that, and you know that's their boogeyman, right? The boogeyman of completely dismissive, doesn't understand homeopathy, has you know a priori rejects it out of hand because they're closed-minded. They're in the pocket of big pharma and you know and corporate medicine or whatever. Um, and what they were confronted with was, you know, were two academic physicians who were completely open-minded, who were just advocating for high standards of scientific evidence. And every caricature they had about what we did and didn't do was wrong, and we were able to give personal examples of why it was wrong. So at, at, eventually they had to admit that you know, we didn't fit their preconceived notions. So then they dismissed the disconfirming evidence of their preconceived notions by saying we were the exceptions. Okay, well, you guys clearly aren't these cardboard, you know, dismissive boogeymen that we had, that we imagined, so you must be the exceptions, rather than reevaluating their own preconceptions. That's the process that they went through. But it was interesting the way their questions completely revealed their own biases, like, for example... You know, one way, this is a very typical question that I often get when I lecture on alternative medicine. She, she uh, challenged me with, you know, what would convince me that homeopathy works? I mean, the, the, Dr. Sane was arguing that homeopathy can be used to cure rabies, which is an almost universally fatal disease. Of course, that was based upon, you know, cases reported from 150 years ago, you know, not, <laughs> nothing that, you know, modern enough that it could actually be validated or verified. And that's, you know, that's a downright astounding claim. This guy, again, was totally delusional and out to lunch. I mean, he thought homeopathy can cure anything, that it was better than standard therapy, than scientific medicine. It was better than it for everything, that everybody should be using it as their primary you know, form of health care. I mean, that was his position. It was, oh, it was, it was bad. He yeah. was the worst. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. He was far and away the most delusional. Uh, so he's claiming that it can cure rabies. You know, because of these cases of 150 years ago. So a member of the audience asked me, well, you know, how many dogs with rabies would have to be cured with homeopathy for you to believe that it works? You know, which is, you know, a bit of a misconception because, you know, no one study should really convince you of anything. But I said, well, listen, 
You know, an exact number, I don't know, that's a question for a statistician, but if there was a reliable study that was well-designed, that was, you know, transparent, so I know there's no fraud going on, and, and you were able to cure a significant number of dogs with rabies, I would definitely take that very seriously. That would be very compelling evidence, because, the, you know, rabies is almost universally fatal. But she felt the need to ask me if positive evidence would convince me that homeopathy worked. She didn't feel the need to ask the homeopaths if negative evidence would ever convince them that it didn't work. And, of course, I turned the question around on her and said, if, the, if that study gets done and it's negative, well, then that, will you then doubt that homeopathy works? Nice. If, you know, it's easy to say yes when we know we're never going to see each other again. But that's the, the, the bottom line is that's the difference. You know, as a physician, I change my practice all the time. I'm constantly... Constantly evolving and slowly changing my practice based upon the evidence as it comes in. Homeopaths are locked into a 200-year-old philosophy of medicine. They haven't changed what they've done. They don't react to new evidence. They're just looking. The evidence is there for cover. Actually, I want to mark Chrislip from uh, QuackCast quoted Mark Twain in another context, but the quote is so perfect. You know, Mark Twain said that, and I'll just I'll apply his quote to homeopaths. Homeopaths use evidence like a drunk uses a light post for support rather than for illumination. <laughs> nice. That's perfect. And that's the perfect characterization. That's what this uh, conference was all about. That's what it was all about. Well, let's go on to the next news item. Rebecca, actually, you blogged today about a couple of 9-11 truthers who decided that uh, they've been ignored for too long. And in order to get their message out, they're just going to start heckling people at public events. Yeah, well, I think it's um, the organized group of truthers have decided that basic facts not being on their side anymore, that they're going to um, completely destroy any kind of credibility they had. And... um, which hopefully is none, but maybe there are some people out there who didn't realize exactly how kooky they were. So yeah, last week we had Bill Maher getting yelled at during his show, and he made them look like ridiculous fools. And then a few days ago, uh, they tried it again with Bill Clinton. And Bill Clinton, you know, whether or not you like his politics, he's very smart, very quick, very well-spoken. People like He's him. slick. <laughs> and, yeah, so probably not the best person to um, <laughs> shout at <laughs> during, a, during a talk. So he gave them uh, a very nice and refreshing smackdown. The audience cheered, and security dragged them away. Uh, it amazes me that they think that this is how they can get their... They, they feel that this is the best way that they can get their message across. Because it just doesn't work. And, you know, of course, for the quickie background, these are the group that believe that 9-11 was an inside job, that the terrorist attacks on the Pentagon and the Twin Towers was uh, was done by the United States, by the Bush administration, that there's a conspiracy to cover up this truth. Of course, their their claims are have been utterly disproven by the facts, and they don't really have a single legitimate point to make. I guess people are getting bored with them. They're starting to lose traction, which is a good thing. Now, I I wondered, though, did they think that because this was Bill Clinton, that that he was going to say, yeah, you're right, it's fraud, it's an inside job, and he was like... What are you talking about? You know, it's, it's not, there is, there's, there's no fraud. This is not inside job. I mean. Yeah, I wonder if they're, yell- if they're yelling at Bill Clinton, though, as well, because um, a friend of mine pointed out that they, they can't believe that 
it was all completely orchestrated by Bush, right? Because it happened right after he took office. So mm-hmm. Clinton must have had something to do with it, right? It's it's kind of funny that they're they're going after these more liberal targets with with their you know with their rhetoric. It's it's actually it's pretty baffling. I, you're right because I, I remember even getting just in an email discussion with the nine eleven truth at once, and I said, "Why haven't the Democrats?" who are now control the Congress, why aren't they bringing this information to the public? I mean, do you think that Ted Kennedy is hiding Bush's inside job? Wouldn't he be you know, screaming this from the rooftops? And the response was, they're all in on it. The yep. press, yeah. the New York Times, they're all in on it. You know, either that or that there is this shadow government that's really running the show and that all of the uh, quote-unquote elected officials are just pawns of this real shadow government. So, you know, once you're at that level of conspiracy nut, I mean, there's no point in carrying the conversation any further. Yeah, it's often described as a liberal, left-leaning conspiracy theory, but really they're just anti-government in general. Mm-hmm. So it extends to both the Democrats and the Republicans. Right, right. Well, one quick follow-up. A, a few times uh, on, in the past, we've talked about the extinction of the dinosaurs, the so-called KT extinction, which the prevailing theory is that a meteor struck the Chicxulub crater, which is in Mexico, in the Gulf of Mexico, and that that impact was, was what, that single impact is what resulted in the, the extinction uh, of, of the dinosaurs at the KT boundary. Um, however, there's a minority opinion in, in the geology, paleontology world that thinks that there were multiple events that conspired together to lead to the, the mass extinction of the dinosaurs and other animals at that time. Well, I noticed a press release. This, the press release uh, reports the results of a new study that is being published by Gerda Keller, who is the, uh, the paleontologist who is in the minority opinion of the multiple event you know, uh, theory. And they were looking at the so-called Deccan eruption, that's D-E-C-C-A-N, which is a massive eruption of, of like supervolcanoes in India around the same time. And they claim that this is a major contributor to the, the extinction of the dinosaurs. One of the things that caught my attention about the press release is that it, the press release made it sound as if Gerda Keller's opinion is accepted and didn't even acknowledge that it, there's this other school of thought which completely disagrees with this construction of events and that even that's the more generally accepted one. So it's you know, like scientists writing their own press release and in their own press release they're saying, by the way, I'm completely right and just you know, ignoring the other side. Now, a year, about a year ago, actually last December, I interviewed a paleontologist, Kent McLeod, who is, had just published some research that strongly supported the single impact theory. So I emailed Ken today, and he was nice enough to email me back at very short notice. This is the email he sent me in response to this latest press release. He said, Hi, I watched Gerda and a colleague present the story in Denver this morning. I found the evidence presented in support of their conclusion to be very thin. 
In fairness, it is difficult to present significant results in a short talk. However, this new model is at best inconsistent with and in many places contradicts previous conclusions from Goethe's group. They made no mention of what was lacking or wrong in their previous data or previous analysis and caused them not to realize this new major wrinkle. Further, the evidence from the many scientists who believe the single impact model is very strongly supported was not addressed at all. I personally find such selective presentation of results disappointing. And there you have it. Thank you, Ken, for giving your side of the story. So this, I find this very interesting because this is a legitimate scientific controversy, or although you know, my personal reading of it as a non-expert, but just somebody who's interested, is that the evidence is leaning more and more towards the single impact theory, and that's emerging you know, as, the, as the scientific consensus. But there is this, again, this persistent minority other opinion that is consistently producing data that supports the multiple event hypothesis um, and this is being argued out in in the in the literature and at conferences obviously so it's it's, inter- it's interesting to watch how a legitimate scientific controversy plays itself out is uh, Gerda Keller in danger of compromising herself as a legitimate scientist that the more she clings to uh, this her angle of uh, of what what occurred here well you know that's a good question and it, what she sacrifices if she clings really beyond the evidence it's okay to advocate for your construction of things your perspective and and to even okay if it's in the minority sometimes the minority opinion's correct and then evidence later shows that that's uh, shows that it that it was correct and it emerges and becomes the consensus or the or the majority opinion uh, so that's okay it's always good to have somebody taking the other side it keeps you honest and it, and it makes sure that the, the data is really looked at from all sides but if you really cling beyond reasonableness then you begin to lose your your reputation it's not like her career is going to end or you know she's not she's going to be out of the club or anything it's just that the your colleagues who can see what you're doing you will not respect you know you academically as much as they otherwise would have one last news item. This is just a quickie. Uh, a photograph has been circulating, allegedly, of Bigfoot. Now, this was taken by, in Pennsylvania, and of a, a hunter who rigged a camera so that it would be triggered by an animal walking by, and he was hoping to take pictures of deer or whatnot. And it's a very good technique, and I've often wondered, you know, I've often thought that this would be a really good technique to look for things like, you know, Bigfoot. But he wasn't looking for Bigfoot. He was looking for deer. And his camera snapped a picture that, to me, looked a little strange, although not necessarily anything supernatural. Was it it Bigfooty? You know what? It's not. It's not Bigfooty. It looks like a, a mangy black quadruped. It actually looks like my dog. <laughs> actually, if I were to say what it most looked like to me, um, including supernatural creatures, I would have said it was a werewolf. <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of lanky. Uh, you know, it's yeah. got long arms and legs. It's on all fours. It's unfortunately facing away from the camera, so we got a picture of its butt. I can't wait uh, to see your quote taken out of context. It's a werewolf, says Stephen Novella of. Right, right. <laughs> no, but if I were going to like send this around as a supernatural creature or or as a cryptozoological creature, I wouldn't pick Bigfoot. I would have said that looks like oh, it looks like the werewolf from The Howling or uh, an American Werewolf in London or something. Or maybe but, a wolf with uh, 
Jack Nicholson. Yeah, I forgot that one. Did he that one walk on all fours? I I don't think I actually saw. There's it. There's a reason why you forgot that one, Steve. That movie. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> it, did, it did. It also it so, also if you think about maybe it's a little monkey esque. It does have a little monkey look to it. Little, yeah, that's not very Halloween. Uh, I don't know. No, I don't. I don't think it's it looks like a primate. Uh, that's the thing. I disagree. So you know, some Bigfoot enthusiasts are saying that it looks. It does look like a primate. But you know, I've actually never seen a, a, a conceptualization or picture of Bigfoot walking on all fours. It's always walking upright, right? Yeah, pretty um, much. This one's walking on yep. all fours. Now, Jerry Feaser, who is a conservation officer, said that uh, there is no question. It is a bear with a severe case of mange. That was his conclusion. Oh. And I suppose that's, that's possible. I'm, not, I'm no expert. He would probably know better than I. Although it looks a little thin to me. It must be a really emaciated bear. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have that husky bear look to it. It looks really well, thin. Doesn't mange make you emaciated? Well, mange is just the fur, right? Yeah, does mange do anything? Is it like rabies? Well, mange is just like you know losing patches of fur, which clearly is the case in this yeah, but picture. I think it goes hand in hand with malnourishment. Yeah, I think the malnourishment is causing the mange. Yeah, right. Not not mange causing him being thin or malnourished. Yes, I agree with that. So that kind of fits. So it's like, it could just be a really sick, starving, emaciated, mangy black bear. Sure. But it's more fun to think that maybe it's a werewolf. <laughs> Right. So we'll go with that. Well, let's move on to your questions and email. The first one comes from Kevin McMorrow from Hawaii, who says, Hi, Rebecca. He specifically addresses it to you, Rebecca. Hi. Fantastic show. I loved it when you infiltrated the Christian scientists with your medicated lip balm. Yep, that was a good one. That was fun. I had a question on supplements. You said that your last stronghold of pseudoscience was in health supplements. I believe that I am in the final stages of giving up vitamin, mineral, and other proclaimed healthy supplements. I have already given up the multivitamin and mineral tabs and a bunch of individual things I was taking. Right now, I am on spirulina and salt palmetto. I have changed my diet in the direction of vegetarianism, but am a long way off from becoming one, despite believing that is the the right path to take for health. What are your thoughts on these two supplements? And are there some trusted websites that you could recommend with info on supplements? On a side note, have you ever heard of Dr. Gregor? Aloha. (laughs) Thanks, Kevin. I'm going to let Steve handle most of the talk about supplements because he knows a lot more about them than I do. I'll just say that I never took spirulina because I did a little bit of research on that and seems kind of bogus. What I used to take was a multivitamin that uh, it's just your basic like centrum, one of those, because I was told that <clears throat> I should because I'm a vegetarian and I'm not going to be getting all of my nutrients and whatnot. I gave that up like, geez, a couple of years ago mostly because I'm too lazy and poor to bother taking a pill every day, Uh, but also because I realized that I wasn't getting any tangible benefit from it at all. I stopped taking the pill and didn't notice anything happened to my energy levels or uh, how often I got sick or anything like that. I think that it's actually really, really easy to be a vegetarian and get everything you need um, nutrition-wise. You can eat peanut butter and salads and vegetables and nuts and whatnot and 
it's really no problem at all. If anything, being a vegetarian makes it easier to get all the vitamins because a lot of the vitamins that we need are in sort of fruits and vegetables. The problem with vegetarians is not vitamins. It's getting enough protein. Right. You have to make and sure that you're eating the vegetables with the high protein to replace the, the meat protein that you're not getting. And that's not even a problem. I mean, you don't need that much protein. Uh, the, I should say the average healthy adult does not need an immense amount of protein. You don't need mm. any more than what you would find in your average peanut butter and jelly sandwich or, you know, fresh vegetables. It's just really not necessary. And I've never heard of Dr. Greger. No clue. I did, I did a quick Google and found someone, but I'd never uh, heard of him before. So I'm not sure if it's the Dr. Greger that Kevin was referring to. So Steve, I'll let you take the, the details though on the supplements. Sure. I'll, I'll give you the quickie on spirulina and salt palmetto. I actually, years ago, I wrote a pretty long article on spirulina. This is a, um, it's basically algae that comes from usually some, some particular lake somewhere. And it's like, a, it's pond scum, uh, basically. <laughs> and yeah, it's a plant and you can eat it and it's got stuff in it. It's, you know, but it's no better than any other, you know, source of plant nutrition. But the companies that are selling it are selling it as, it's, as if it's quote unquote nature's perfect food as if it magically has the perfect you know, ratio of, ing- of nutrients in it. And so there's a lot of false premises and magical thinking in that, in that. One is that nature would conspire to create one food which is perfect for humans to eat. Actually, as Rebecca was saying, what you really need is just variety. You know, Whether you're a vegetarian or not, just having a well-balanced, well-varied diet is the important thing. It's not really challenging to do that in, in the United States or in an industrialized country. Also, that, that, that there is this sort of golden balance or perfect balance of different nutrients. And, and again, there's no basis for that biologically. You just need to make sure that you're getting at least the minimum of all the stuff that you need. But having it in some kind of magical balance doesn't, doesn't mean anything. But the thing that's most ridiculous about the way spirulina is uh, or these these algae products are promoted is that they're often sold as pills. So even if you accept that there's a lot of nutrients in it and that the the, the nutrients are in a, a ratio that is healthy, you're taking a pill. So it's it's a negligible amount of nutrition that you're getting from it. Now maybe if you were eating it by the handfuls, you know, if you were having meals of pond scum, <laughs> then you then you would have a reasonable at least then you could make the argument that it's good nutrition, but just taking a pill of anything, of any food, no matter how nutritious the food is, food is is just an, it's it's a negligible contribution to your diet. So And can we just say um, please don't go out and have meals of pond scum a lot of that <laughs> is not good for you. <laughs> People are going to be coming down with botulism or something and they come after us. <laughs> but Steve, let's say you take you take a, a well-rounded meal. Like I really always thought that the vitamins and minerals would be about the size of a, maybe a couple of vitamins if that even if that big. Yeah, but not the carbohydrates, the fat and the protein, not the macronutrients. Yeah, th- those have a lot of bulk to them. Yeah. So I mean at the at the at best you could say it's a vitamin pill, you know, yeah. but it but the point was it's not it wasn't really being presented that way. It was being presented as balanced balanced nutrition. You know that the, it was not just the micronutrients and the vitamins stuff, but but macronutrients, and which is irrelevant if you're just taking a, this tiny little pill. The, regarding salt palmetto, this is a an herb that is used for benign prostatic hypertrophy, 
which most men get with age, 70, you know, 80% of men will get it by the time they're in their 70s. You know, the prostate enlarges and starts to squeeze off your urethra so that you have difficulty urinating. I'm still hoping that that's a few years off. Yeah. The, the, so there are a number of small, you know, these preliminary small studies that are not the best designed, but that tend to show uh, a beneficial effect of salt palmetto for mild to moderate BPH, or benign prostatic hypertrophy. But like a lot of things that we talk about, the evidence was really too preliminary and too small to make any definitive statements. And then there was a large study published in the New England Journal of Medicine that was well-designed and well-blinded, looking at moderate to severe BPH and found zero effect. So there are those that point to that study and say, all right, that's the best study we have and it's negative, but the, the believers say, yeah, but they were looking at severe, you know, moderate to severe BPH, so, you know, you can't really, and they excluded mild BPH, and so you can't really say it doesn't work for mild BPH, which is true. So we haven't heard the last word on it, but the evidence isn't, isn't terribly convincing at this point. Maybe there's a modest effect, but again, you're just using it as a drug, just using it as a, as a weak, dirty drug, and there's no reason why it can't have a biological effect, and that certainly may be why the studies are having a hard time showing it. But right now, I don't think you can conclude that it is effective either by the evidence that we have. So let's do one more email. This one comes from Walter from Richmond, Virginia, who writes, Hi guys, love the show, been listening for about a year. So I've got two Halloweenish questions. Number one, he writes, Today while I was driving, I got that familiar sensation of chills running up and down my spine, and I shuddered involuntarily. In my mind's eye, I imagine it was caused by a pulse of electricity traveling from the base of my spine up to my brainstem and back down again before it quickly disappeared. I'm sure almost everyone has felt this before. The explanation that I always heard was a cat just walked over your grave. Since I'm pretty sure there's no grave with my name on it yet, what is the actual cause of this sensation? It's actually a, a monkey with a shank just walked over your grave. Right, and it's where your grave will be. Right. Yeah. Right. The second question is sort of related to the first. Okay, I have this weird sort of mysterious power. I can flex my brain. No, really. Imagine if your brain was a muscle. He meant were a muscle. And on command, you could tighten up the back half of it. And when you tighten it, you get the electric chills, just like the cat walking over your grave, except they're localized to your brain. The sensation isn't in my neck. It's totally in my brain. Geez, all of a sudden, I'm getting the shivers up my spine. Is that right? <laughs> and it kind of makes me feel as if I'm going to pass out if I keep it flexed. If I didn't know any better, I might think I was inducing some sort of mis- mystical trance state in myself. So what gives? Did all of that LSD I did as a teenager actually give me a special power? I just haven't figured out how to use it to its full potential yet. I sure hope so. Well, so thanks, the- <laughs> Walter. It's two interesting questions. So the chills up and down your spine. Uh, it's actually not a, an electrical pulse or electrical signal per se. That does happen and can happen, but that doesn't give you that chill feeling. That causes more of an electrical tingling sensation that that is more unpleasant that shoots up and down your spine. That actually um, has a name. That's called a Lermitz sign, and that's a sign of damage or inflammation to the spinal cord. It's very common in people who have multiple sclerosis with lesions in their spinal cord, and you can induce it by 
flexing your neck a little bit or bending over. Sometimes I had one patient who had it very sensitively, and every time their foot hit the ground when they were walking, that jolt would give them a little Lermite's sign that's shooting electricity up and down their Ouch. spine. But Steve, let's clarify that really quick. Yeah. The way he described it, it was a chill, and yes. I've had that. You know, yeah. It, well, I'm just distinguishing it from this, Jay. You're right. So what I'm talking, what I just described, is not the, the the chill that people anyone can get up and down their spine. So, uh, but he used the term electricity, and I think I don't think that that's accurate. The electricity okay. is a more accurate description of of this phenomenon, this pathological phenomenon. And the the reason that you know it's pathological is that you can reliably induce it by flexing your spine. Now, what he's talking about in terms of the, the spine-tingling sensation that we all are all familiar with is not an, elect- an electrical conduction or electrical problem. It's more of a sympathetic or an autonomic response. It could be triggered purely by fear, by emotion. By being spooked out. Or, or even just by, or by physical cold. It can also trigger it. It's similar to the, um, the reaction that causes us to get goosebumps. So it's an autonomic, sympathetic fight or, fight or flight response, and it's it's it is a just a, a superficial sensation that's probably mainly cutaneous in the skin uh, that causes that. Cut- what does cutaneous mean in the skin? So you said you repeated yourself then. I, <laughs> to clarify it for people like you who didn't know what cutaneous meant. <laughs> Okay, boys. Bring it up, I needed to hear it, it three times. <laughs> I needed it three Before times. Whipping it out on the on the podcast. Oh, it's out, baby! Right now, now. the second question is <laughs> really, a little I bit notice. is a little bit more interesting. So, you know, Walter, you can't feel your brain and you can't flex your brain. So you're just misinterpreting your sensations. First of all. The brain has absolutely no sensation in it. The brain is numb. There, are, there is no sensory nerve endings in the brain. So there's uh, no nerves in your brain. That's, that's right. Really, that's your, silly, Steve. Your brain, it's true. Your brain is numb. Your brain does not feel anything. There's no sensation in the brain itself. And you're not just talking about Jay's brain. Uh, not just Jay's <laughs> brain. Numb skull. Numb skull, okay. yeah. Just to be clear. Just to be clear. I'm talking about... Human beings in general cannot feel So if you have a brain, brain tumor, what, what, do you, what are you actually feeling? If you have any pain sensation in your head, that's caused by the arteries, because the arteries can feel pain, or the meninges aligning around your brain, those have sensors in it, they can feel pain. Um, or it may be in the muscles in your, in your scalp, your neck, or, or in the skin, right, or in some other structure in your head. But it's not in the brain itself. So... You know, this sensation, I, I can only speculate as to what you're feeling when you feel that you're flexing your brain. You know, if you can do it voluntarily, then almost by definition, it's a, it's a voluntary muscle that you're doing. You know, you are contracting your muscles. You're not changing the configuration of your brain, nor are you feeling it. Steve, what's with him thinking that he could pass out from it, though? Well, you know, you again, if, you, if he's contracting things in such a way that it's affecting um, the pressure inside his head, then that could be doing it. Do you think he needs to go to a neurologist just in case this is kind of sounds weird to me. It is a, it is it's it's possible, you know, maybe there's a a blood flow issue. I don't know. Again, like I said I can only speculate and I can't really give medical advice secondhand like this. So, you know, of, of course if if he's concerned about anything, I would get some first-hand medical advice. But just as a phenomenon, I you know, I think it's got to be muscular you know, and maybe pressure, but it's not a brain 
phenomenon that he's And he doesn't have magic powers or anything. And and LSD did not give him magical powers, I think. But, well, thank you, Walter, for the interesting Halloween-ish questions. And now, Randy Speaks. Randy, one of your famous investigations was of the homeopathy research done by Jacques Benveniste. Can you tell us something about that? First of all, I'll say, uh, Steve, that I um, always respected Jacques Benveniste. He was self-deluded. He was full of himself. He had an ego that was um, big even for a Frenchman. And he had academic degrees of all sorts, and he was in charge of a laboratory in Clamart, just outside uh, Paris, quite an eagle and that was his undoing in my estimation he's now deceased he died unfortunately during um i I believe it was a either a brain or heart operation i've forgotten which uh, a few years back i regret that fact very much um then finished when we first met him first of all he had telephoned me briefly i got a phone call uh, in my home in new jersey at that time from uh, Walter Stewart of the National Institutes of Health. He said that I would shortly be getting a call from John Maddox, now Sir John Maddox, uh, at that time the editor of Nature magazine in the UK, and that uh, he hoped that I would go along on this uh, trip that I was invited to uh, to do uh, in their company. He didn't tell me much about it, but minutes after that I got the call from Maddox, and he asked me if I would go over to represent the magic profession or the skeptical <laughs> For on behalf of Nature magazine, because they thought some sort of trickery was up uh, in Clamart, and the research that was coming out of there was very positive concerning homeopathy. Well, it was a rather good thing, as Maddox still says to this day even, and so did Walter Stewart, that they didn't invite me to go along because I was able to provide a point of view that would not normally have occurred to them. No matter how well they observed, uh, they would not, I think, have seen what I saw. Uh, ben Veniste was not cheating. Ben Veniste uh, was self-deluded, but he was being cheated by one of his lab assistants, uh, who was fond of him and uh, rather captivated by his presence and his charisma, which was considerable. Uh, that's another matter altogether. But I must say, when we arrived in France, two things set me up for what we were about to experience. First of all, when we got to the hotel, it was a small residential hotel, very fine little place. Paris is full of these bed and breakfast uh, sort of places. We um, were asked to come down to the lobby by a gentleman whose name we didn't recognize. He was Professor So-and-so, and he was in the company of a, of a colleague, and they were looking very serious. We sat in the little den downstairs, uh, and uh, they approached me with this proposition. They said, first of all, you're, you're here on behalf of Nature magazine. I said, yes. And Walter was looking at me as if to say, what are they going to ask us? Because they weren't media. And uh, they expressed their dismay that we were going to investigate Jacques Benveniste. And they started to go into his credentials. They were saying things like, uh, he has the prize of the Royal Academy of uh, so-and-so and whatever. And the uh, French Academy has has recognized him and published his writings. And they went on and on like this. And I had to hold my hand up at a moment. I said, one moment, please. Of what use is all this information to us? And they said, no, 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 you, you don't understand. People like Jacques Benveni should not be investigated, certainly not by people outside of his field. I said, why not? They said, no, it just isn't done. You know, he's a, he's a leading academic here, and he's very, very well known. I said, that's true, but, uh, you know, in 
it's my experience that everybody should be able to stand a certain amount of investigation, and we certainly aren't starting with a negative attitude here. We are willing to be shown. And they were shaking their head and saying, no, no, you, you should not. You certainly should not say anything to the media about this. And I said, well, it's a little bit too late because the media is going to show up and it's, uh, it's going to be called in on this. Well, that was the first part of the experience. Well, they left shaking their heads and not very happy about the whole thing. The next day, we uh, showed up at uh, Clamara and uh, were ushered inside Ben East's office. Typically Gallic, he was very effusive and, oh, he was so, so pleased to see us and so glad that they had this conjurer, this magician along. Well, he wasn't glad for very long because he thought that was a sort of a novelty. And I don't know how uh, inwardly amused he was over it, but he certainly um, had his attitude after the first day or so. In any case, uh, he leaned back, put his his, arm, his hands and arms behind his head, uh, akimbo, as they say, and uh, he announced to us, first gentleman, and I can almost word for word paraphrase what he said, his English was excellent. He said, I will not countenance or entertain in any way any criticism or doubt about <clears throat> any of my staff here at Clamar. Uh, they're all trusted uh, colleagues from many years back, all well qualified to do the work that they're doing, and uh, we will not be uh, allowing any uh, questioning of them uh, in a critical way or uh, investigating them to see whether there there might be some possible malfeasance here. Well, I <clears throat> glanced over at uh, John uh, and uh, at Walter, and we sort of agreed by a small nod that this was the crux of the whole thing. And indeed, that's what it turned out to be, because uh, he was being diddled by his, his, own, um, his own people. He was being deceived by them because they wanted the boss to be happy. And in the French academic world, as I found out at that time and found out subsequently several times, you don't question the boss. If he outranks you, he's right. Always. He's never questioned. And uh, <clears throat> a Nobel laureate, whose name I do not recall, but he won a Nobel Prize in Physics in Grenoble in France, once said to me, when I questioned him on this very matter, he said, uh, he pointed outside his office and he said, you see all these desks around here? And, he, and I said, yes. He said, these are all my colleagues that work with me. And he said, I could step to that door and call everyone's attention to the fact that I just made a major discovery that four plus four equals nine. And I want them to incorporate that in their calculations from now on. And to do that, they would make notes and they would nod at one another, astonished that they had never realized this before. But because it came from a Nobel laureate and from their boss, they would incorporate. And he said, now that's a lie. That's not true, of course. But it's almost true in the French academic system that the boss is so or is not so. That's the way it is. And you don't doubt it and you don't question it. And you work as if it were absolutely true whether you believe it or not. Now, that's scary, Steve. I find that scary. But I'm told that that's the way the French academic system works. And I believe that other academic systems around the globe work very much in the same way, unfortunately. I think we just encountered that in the South Korean stem cell research scandal. The same issues seem to have to to have cropped up. Yes, these are a couple of examples of where the the boss speaks and everybody pays attention. It's a very uh, unintellectual approach. It is indeed, and it's not a, a true academic approach, and it certainly is anti-scientific or unscientific method of handling these things, but uh, rank has its privileges, and uh, this is one of the privileges. It can be wrong and be treated as if it's right. Randy, thank you. A pleasure as always. A great pleasure. 
It's time for Science or Fiction. Every week, I come up with three science news items or facts. Two genuine and one is fake, fictitious, and false. And then I challenge my skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Uh, you guys have had a pretty good track record recently. I think it's was what four weeks or so in a row where everyone got it correct. So yeah, that up. hidden camera over your desk that I placed was. Yeah. Oh, oops. Oops. Thanks. <laughs> oops. So obviously, I'm taking it too easy on you guys. Well, let's see how you do this week. Number one, a new study shows that people will eat more calories in Halloween candy if it comes in small bite-sized pieces rather than jumbo-sized. I should say, by the way, that there's a theme this week, and that theme is behavior. Okay. Item number two, in a recent study, those who identified themselves as moral exhibited greater immoral behavior. And item number three, a recent analysis suggests that altruism and the tendency to make war co-evolved, each dependent on the other for selective pressures. Jay, why don't you go first? Absolutely. The first one, the, the uh, Halloween candy, uh, eat, eating more if it's bite-sized than if it's one jumbo-sized, absolutely. I've been known to go through, you know, then Halloween, like five, six, seven of those little guys, and you just think, oh, they're so small, and you know, do a quick calorie calculation in your head, which you're totally... Uh, you know, you're under-guessing. But if I sat down and ate a whole Snickers bar, I'd probably want to throw up, and that would be pretty much it for candy for a while for me. But okay, I agree with that one. Second one, where uh, people who identify themselves as moral exhibited greater immoral behavior. That's interesting. I would tend to think that one is true as well, for some reason. And then the third one, uh, altruism and the tendency to make war co-evolved. I disagree with that one. I think that one's the fake. Alrighty. Evan? Alright. Study showing people will eat more calories in Halloween candy if it comes in small bite-sized pieces rather than jumbo-sized. It's totally plausible. Yeah. I, I, it, it, it seems like that's the curveball to me, but it's so plausible that I'd be embarrassed if I chose that one and got it wrong whereas the study about uh, identifying themselves as moral exhibited greater immoral behavior absolutely I, th- I totally can understand that you know the uh, some reverends I've seen preaching on TV have uh, fallen into darker times at times in their lives so I can totally see that and then the tendency to make war co-evolved altruism and the tendency to make war you spend on the other for selective pressure. It's interesting. Boy, it's either that or the candy. Oh, God, I guess I'm just going to have to choose, huh? Yeah, that's what it comes down to. It. All right, Jay, that's, that's I'm, the I'm, nature I'm, of choosing, is that you have to ultimately <laughs> choose. <laughs> I, I choose not to choose. Ha ha. No, I'll, I'll jump on the J bandwagon and say that <laughs> okay. uh, altruism, that's the f- fiction. Okay, Rebecca? Oh, man. I was actually trying to debate between the candy thing and the moral immoral thing. Rebecca, can you do me a favor? Yeah. Can you get angry about at least one of these so I don't miss Bob as much? (laughs) Oh, oh, sure. Start by saying crap. Okay. Oh, crap. (laughs) Steve, (laughs) no, this is totally bogus because all of these are true and... We should be putting millions of dollars into micro candy. Billions, billions. For, I'm sorry, 
billions of dollars into developing tinier and tinier Halloween candies. <laughs> nano so candy. They could, nano candy is the word I was looking for. Thank you. We need to invest billions of dollars into nano candy, um, and then we can all eat a lot of candy. I, I'm not good at good at being Bob yeah. tonight. Well, now you're just Sorry. stalling, so let's go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with... Uh, I'm going to say the candy thing is wrong. I've, I've, oh, I've heard studies in the past that say that smaller, say, packages of snacks are actually better for you, but uh, so I don't know. I'm going to go with the candy thing, saying that's not true. Okay, so you all agree that in a recent study, those who identified themselves as moral exhibited greater immoral behavior. This is certainly one that we would like to be true, which is why I thought I might get one of you guys for this. But this one is science. This one is true. We don't want it to be true. Wouldn't it be nice if the people who identified themselves as moral actually were moral? Well, you you know know what I mean. (laughs) There are certainly lots of people who think that they're moral that are not. So this, in a way, this goes along with our preconceived notions. Uh, this, is a, this is an interesting study. Uh, this looked at the tendency for people to cheat, and it segregated them by whether or not they thought they identified themselves as moral people, and also whether or not they thought that cheating was always, always wrong, or that it could ever be justified. Interestingly, whether or not people thought that they were moral did not in any way correlate with their tendency to think that cheating was right or wrong or that they, or whether or not they would cheat. Um, only whether or not they thought that cheating was wrong. What kind of cheating, Steve? Cheating on a test? Like cheating, cheating on a cheating test. On your cheating on a test. Cheating okay. on a test. How, but when they, when they identified themselves as moral, they were actually, and, and they thought it was okay to cheat, those people cheated much more than people who didn't think they were moral but thought it was okay to cheat. Does that make sense? So the conclusion of the study was that the self-perception of being a moral person was a motivational factor. It made you more confident to act upon your, your moral judgments. But it didn't make you do the right thing. In order to do the right thing, you also had to, to independently come to the correct moral judgment. So when you th- that's really interesting when you think about it because if you take for example people who believe that they're very moral because they adhere to some moralistic religious belief then if if they focus their energies on doing charity and doing good works they could be very highly motivated and very you know very energetic at doing charitable things but if they think it's that if they think questionable or immoral acts are justified and they see themselves as being moral or, or faithful or religious or whatever, then they could be motivated to do extremely bad things, too. And that kind of fits with historical observation, right? Absolutely. Number three. A recent analysis suggests that altruism and the tendency to make war co-evolved, each dependent on the other for selective pressures. This one is science. Ha. Uh, <sighs> So congratulations, Rebecca. <laughs> Rebecca. Now, I found this interesting, too. Now, this is you know, evolutionary psychology, which, of course, we all know has its, has its problems in terms of testability. And I said this was a, an analysis that suggested this, right? The, this was a, um, a game theory analysis where they looked at what selective pressures would be in play given different situations. 
And what they found was that altruism in and of itself, and again, the conventional wisdom is that, well, we evolved altruism, therefore altruism, even though we might be you know, sacrificing our own personal fitness or the ability to pass our own genes on to future generations, we're in favor of some other person or some other person's ability to pass on their genes. So initially it seems counterintuitive within a Darwinian paradigm, but the conventional wisdom was, and, and, and earlier analyses suggested that the selective pressures would favor altruism because of, for, for two things, one, kin selection. You may be helping out somebody, even though they're your third cousin, they still have some of your genes. Or reciprocity, people who are willing to sacrifice themselves for others, you know, other people therefore more likely to f- sacrifice themselves for them and their kin. So, but what this analysis shows is that altruism by itself does not get selected for, does not produce a selective advantage. Uh, and that making conflict uh, upon other groups, com- you know, waging war against other groups also by itself does not produce a selective advantage. But if you have the two things together and what they called parochial altruism, which is altruism combined with a sense of protecting and defending your group, uh, and combine that with you know hostility towards other groups, that, that the two things together produced a selective advantage. All of this means that a new study shows that people will eat more calories in Halloween candy if it comes in small bite-sized pieces rather than jumbo-sized is fiction. And Rebecca, you hit on one of the reasons why this is fiction. People do eat less when it comes in smaller packages, and they consume more when it comes in bigger packages because their perception of how much they've eaten is altered by that. Correct. That's right. <laughs> um, so, you, Jay, you will eat more calories by eating the big jumbo Snickers bar than by eating a bunch of small ones. So I was, I was 100% wrong. That's right. I can admit that now. Uh, and this was this was inspired by although there's independent research that I found that supports what I just said, but the the study that I was basing this on was a slightly different factor, which is another factor that makes the multiple small candies also lead to less total calories consumed, but only within a certain circumstance. What they found was that if you are eating multiple small pieces of candy and and the wrappers of that candy were left in sight people would eat less. If the wrappers were removed from their sight, then they would eat more. So the, the visual reminder of how much candy you've already eaten, because you have wrappers laying around, would actually make people eat less. Hmm. So there's something to be said for nano candy. That's right. Yeah, that's it. Brains, <laughs> no, brains. You need to be able to see the candy. And the wrappers. <laughs> Just the wrapper. <laughs> so congratulations, Rebecca. Thank you. Well done. I know my Halloween candy. At least I ended the uh, the clean sweep streak Good by getting you. Jay and Evan. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Okay, let's go. <laughs> Next episode. <laughs> Evan. Hi. Last week's puzzle. Last week's puzzle is as such, or was as such. Perhaps it's performed by folks in an arena, or perhaps by a person saying hello. Perhaps it's a style of filaments on Christina, or practiced by those who disturb the status quo. It claims it will cure us of our alopecia, along with a hundred other things, but I doubt that it's so. What is it? And the answer is human wave therapy. Mm, and course. I got this little device from uh, going HWT. to the... HWT. Qu- 
going to the Quack Watch uh, website and looking this up. And this is a device that claims to make the water cells in human body resonate and increase its vitality. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, uh, and, and apparently that results in, uh, in uh, treating things such as bronchitis, gastritis, hepatitis. Yeah, hey, whatever. Diarrhea. I mean, well, really, the list here is uh, 100 things, uh, including alopecia, which is uh, hair loss. Mm-hmm. Problem. So it's good for good for what ills you, as they say. Mm-hmm. Yet, unfortunately, there's absolutely no evidence that it does anything. <laughs> it's good. It's good solid mumbo jumbo, though. Oh yeah, this was a this was a wild one. Now, one person kind of came close to getting the puzzle right, but I don't think I can give credit for that. Cindy, uh, also known as Flighty, from the website. I mean, she actually went through line by line and understood that perhaps. So here we go. Perhaps it's performed by folks in an arena. A wave, perhaps a person saying hello, another wave, perhaps it's style of filaments on Christina, filaments meaning the hair, I was thinking permanent wave or ha- wavy hair, practiced by those who disturb the qu- status quo, people who make waves. But she didn't get, she didn't get that I was looking for, she, she didn't, she said she didn't waves. She didn't find human wave therapy. Ap- right, yeah. she didn't apply a, a skeptical answer to it. Remember, the answers are are always right. rooted in some sort of uh, some, something having to do with skepticism. So uh, maybe I'll give Cindy, we'll give Cindy half credit. For, give her partial uh, credit. Yeah, we'll do a partial credit for but Cindy. But she doesn't so. win the his and her motorbikes. That's right. I'm yeah. sorry. Maybe next time. What about time. the dining set? No dining set. No. <laughs> sorry, Cindy, sorry. next time. <laughs> but you do win a bag of nano candy. So I'll be sending that along to you in the mail. Evan, do you have a puzzle this week? Yes, I do. Why, Steve? Why do you always ask him that? You know he's got one. It's rhetorical, Jay. He's right, being skeptical. Go. Do you need me to define rhetorical for you? <laughs> <laughs> this week's yes. puzzle is as follows. Is it a carved-up giant from the Atlantic? Or is it a dead man in search of an internal bed? Is it the surgical removal of the ovaries? Or a candle in the dark that fills one's empty head? What is it? What am I describing? Is it nano candy? <laughs> I'm sorry, it's uh, all I can think about. We'll have to wait for the next episode to see. It's pond so, scum. Yeah, right. It's pond scum. That's it. So enjoy that one, folks. Good luck. We'll talk about it more next week. Thank you, Evan. Thank you. Jay. I, yes, sir. Do you have a quote for us this week? No, I don't. <laughs> Jay. Of course I do. You and your rhetorical questions. Hit it. This quote was sent to us by Mark Chrislip, and I was surprised to hear that he's, he emailed you a quote, Steve. I, I didn't get that previous He didn't quote, email to me, Jay. I just heard it on his podcast, and it was so perfect I had to steal it. Okay. Well, he actually physically hand-typed me an email mm-hmm. and gave me this quote, and I like it, and I think um, I'm going to read it. So this is a, a quote from Richard Dawkins, and he says, Offense is what people take when they can't take argument. Richard Dawkins. That's very good. <laughs> Well said, hey, old Very man. appropriate. Quite well. Micro candy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Nano candy. Uh, mm-hmm. What are you guys dressing up as tomorrow? Tomorrow's Halloween. Rebecca, we have kids. Our kids get dressed up, and then we escort them around the neighborhood while they extort candy from all of our neighbors. You have to be dressed up, too. 
Rebecca, Come look. On, skeptics. This I don't want to. I don't want to make whatever yeah. stupid costume you're putting on tomorrow look foolish. But I, I spent the last month as a zombie in Bob's Corn Maze. Oh, did you? Okay. I have. I have one of the most tricked out zombie costumes known to man. I have a five hundred dollar silicone zombie mask that's form-fitting to my face. So what your little cowgirl or supergirl outfit you're wearing tomorrow <laughs> just doesn't match up. To my zo- my zombie my zombie costume actually smells like rotting flesh. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Bob was showing off his costume, his zombie costume, to me the other day, and he he actually said that it has not only visual components but auditory and olfactory as well. Oh, great. <laughs> and he, he deadpanned you, right, that. Steve? Totally deadpanned it. Yeah. Oh, Bob. Okay, I don't know if I can compete <sighs> with the olfactory, but. I think I have the start of a really good zombie costume because, as many of our listeners know, I got creamed on the football field last week, and I currently have a huge black eye like that's been oozing blood and grossness for the last uh, couple of days. Shiner, I do have a quick announcement as well, although it's actually more of a plea. So we have two months left to the end of the year, and... We're, we're a few thousand listeners away from the the 30,000 listener mark, which is a completely arbitrary barrier, but... 30,000 a week, you'd say, Steve. 30,000 30, weekly listeners, right? We're, yeah. we're, right now, we're, we're, we're getting close to 27,000, so we're about 3,000 away from hitting 30,000. We'd really like to get over 30,000 by the end of 2007. So, actually, all of you listeners out there, you've been absolutely tremendous in terms of spreading the word. We've gotten as far as we have pretty much purely on your word of mouth. We get emails from people all the time saying that they turned on their friends or their coworkers to the podcast or that they heard about it from a friend or a family member or whatever. So obviously you guys are spreading the word and we greatly appreciate it. And what we want to ask you now, since we're getting close to the end of the year and we want to get over the 30,000 barrier, is just all of our listeners out there make a, a, a concerted effort over the next few weeks to get you know one or two new listeners hooked on the Skeptics Guide to the Universe. Let's push us over the top. We're also, on, on our iTunes ranking, we've fallen out of the top ten, not because our numbers are going down, our numbers are continuing to go up, but because there's just so much more competition. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more science podcasts out there by the big boys like Scientific American and National Geographic and NASA, etc. So we have a lot more competition. So we want to punch our way back into the top ten, and in order to do that, I think we're going to really need to get our numbers up. So please take the time and do us the the good favor of spreading the word. And leaving feedback on Dig and other other sites like that definitely helps get our name out as well. All that good stuff. And Mm -hmm. brainwashing. Don't forget brainwashing as an option. (laughs) And bribery. That works too. Yep. Hypnotism. Whatever it takes. Well, thank you guys. I couldn't do it without you. Seriously. No, you couldn't. Thank you. Thank you all. (laughs) And, of course, we couldn't do it without our wonderful listeners, so thank all of you out there That's for sure. But we have proven over the past month we can do it without Bob. (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately. But we do miss Bob, so Bob's got to fix his internet connection so we can get him back. Well, and until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. 
For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. 